Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Hello, and thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what's currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Mike Gagno, and joining me for today's episode are Dr. Kathy Yang, infectious disease clinical pharmacist at UCSF San Francisco Medical Center, and Dr. Monica Mahoney, outpatient infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Our topic today is COVID-19 prevention and management in the immunocompromised population. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Hi, everyone. So there have been a few significant changes since this group got together. In fact, we've had to re-record part of this podcast because of some of these changes. And in fact, later in the podcast, we refer to the PREP Act expiring in October of 2024. However, HHS has actually indicated they intend to extend it through 2024. So it's important to keep up with, with the latest information. And don't forget to check that living handout online. Kathy, I'm going to turn to you. What can you tell us about the latest circulating variants? Yeah, so when we last got together, we were talking about XBB.1.5. And within the last few weeks or so, we have this new Omicron subvariant that has actually been in the news quite a bit. It's XBB.1.16. And it's actually got a name. It's called the Arcturus subvariant of Omicron. The WHO has already classified it as a variant of concern, and it's been dominant in certain countries, including India. It's now been detected in 31 countries worldwide. The good news is it's still very low in the United States, and the dominant strain in the United States, of course, is still XBB.1.5. But looking at the CDC now cast estimates, they are forecasting that the new Arcturus is going to be rising, and their forecasts show it to be about nine and a half percent. So is this important and is this concerning? Yes and no. It does have mutations that make it seem like none of the monoclonals will work on it. But the good thing is there's no evidence that there is any increase in clinical severity. The one interesting thing about this subvariant is it has a unique symptom of conjunctivitis. So patients have been complaining of red or itchy eyes and something to be aware of as we move into allergy season so that if you have patients complaining of increased eye symptoms due to allergies, you know, you just always have to have COVID in the back of your mind. That seems like that's always a problem this time of year with any kind of cold or flu symptoms like, oh, it's just my allergies. So that's a good point to be on the alert for, for this unusual symptom of this new subvariant. How about cases and trends or vaccination rates? Are we seeing anything different? Well, the good news is we are still very low with regards to our COVID cases. So we are about the lowest we've been since mid-2021 in terms of cases and deaths. And that's really a tribute to being having a very highly vaccinated population in, in the U.S., both having immunity either by vaccination or by disease. The good news with the new booster recommendations that are coming out, moving to the bivalent, is it will simplify things. We always talk about vaccine coverage. And for the most part, when we talk about primary series, we do pretty well. 
for the population in general, but we always have to keep our eyes out for the populations that don't tend to be have access to vaccines or are vaccine hesitant, such as the African American community and Latinx. And those are communities, again, that we will need to target. And hopefully with our new vaccine recommendations, that will become easier. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned those new recommendations. So big news recently, what's changed? Yeah. So, you know, this is the reason why we had to re-record this section because COVID news is like, I think I've said this before, it's like buying a car. So as soon as you drive it off the lot, it's basically lost value. It's the same as doing an ASHP podcast. As soon as you record it, you lost value. (laughs) So there were some huge recommendations that came out on April 18th with regards to the bivalent vaccines. So the monovalent vaccines were actually FDA deauthorized. So those are no longer in use. And so what that means is anybody who requires a primary series, now it's just, it's they've made it really easy. It's just a single bivalent vaccine. I'm going to talk specifically about the adults. So for adults, it's super easy. It's one dose, regardless of what you got before. If you got two doses of the monovalent before, you still just get a single bivalent vaccine. If you've never got anything before, it's still just a single bivalent vaccine. And they're interchangeable, meaning that if you got primary series with Moderna, you can get either the Pfizer or the Moderna bivalent vaccine. So that's the easy part. For patients that are 65 years and older, they can actually get two bivalent vaccines four months apart. And then here is where it gets a little bit screwy. For immune compromised patients, they've actually made it somewhat easier. So regardless of what you got before, you can get up to two bivalent vaccines two months apart, unlike the 65 years and older. So this is two months apart. So you get one bivalent, you wait two months, you get another bivalent. And there is an option then to also get a third bivalent vaccine two months later and select immune compromised patients. This is all about to be updated on the CDC website. So the thing I would suggest to everyone is, you know, you really have to go look at the CDC website and look at their infographics because it is going to be a little bit confusing as we move away from the multi-dose shots to like the single shot. So that's for adults. So where we go off the rails completely, I think, is for the children. The children's vaccines, the pediatrics, they tried to simplify it, but it doesn't look that simple to me. I actually, I think I'm going to have to tape it to my wall so I can look at it each time because it really depends on your age. You know, if you're six months to four or if you're greater than five and what vaccine you got before and how many doses you got before. So depending on what you got before, you can get one or two doses of either vaccine and they're not interchangeable for the six months to four years. So it's almost too much to talk about. I would suggest just taping it to your wall and looking at it each time because that's what I'm going to have to do. And don't use a super tacky tape because you're probably going to have to take it down and and replace it (laughs) at some point. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, maybe a push pin. <laughs> and then the last thing I would say is because the monovalent has been deauthorized, just check it. So record the waste and throw it away so you don't get it mixed up with your bivalents. 
I was just going to ask you about that. So how do we make sure there's no medication errors? Have we seen any guidance on what to do with monovalence? And yeah, I think that that sums it up nicely. Just don't keep it around if there's a risk of mixing that up. Yeah. That's good info, Kathy. Appreciate that. And for any of our listeners, you should know that this podcast series is a continuation from last year's summer meeting, but we're going to be starting a new one that's a continuation of a presentation from mid-year. And Sarah Parsons will be joining us and, and she'll help us take a look at this from a pediatric perspective. So stay tuned and check out the ASAP podcast page for more information in the coming month or so. Um, there was one other therapeutic update since our last podcast. And uh, we were just talking about there's a little bit of a controversy over the, the revision to the nermatrovir ritonavir labeling that no longer requires a positive COVID-19 test prior to prescribing. And it does require a diagnosis. So this, this has created a little bit of a stir. Kathy, Monica, what are your thoughts? Well, so the intent of the EUA, as far as my understanding, was to remove the COVID-19 test requirement as an equity issue. So what are we going to do at the end of the PHE when people have to start paying for tests and they can't afford it or if there's no tests? So the scenario is something like you are a household member in a house with a bunch of people who already have COVID or known test positive for COVID, and now you are symptomatic. Do you actually need a test? And what if you don't have a test available? So without a test available, does that mean we don't prescribe Nermatrelvir, Ritonavir? Even though it looks like COVID, it smells like COVID, you were exposed, you are symptomatic, and you're within five days. And if that is the case, then the test should not be the barrier. We should just go ahead and prescribe Nermatrelvir, Ritonavir. So then the controversy becomes, what does that actually mean with regards to this, the symptom onset? Do we have to be symptomatic at the time of prescribing versus are you symptomatic at the time of taking? And if the removal of that testing requirement is for an equity issue, then I think we do have to stop and give props to them for trying to remove an equity barrier because we've learned throughout the pandemic how much of a difference we have in terms of testing or vaccination or even access to treatment across different geographic areas of the U.S. So that is a good thing. The other reason that I've heard is that this is in, in anticipation of full FDA approval of the medication. And if you look at other antivirals that are approved for indications, for example, Oseltamivir for influenza, it does not have a testing requirement in its uh, package insert prescribing information. It does have the same language of a diagnosis of influenza. So this is harmonizing the language with other fully FDA approved products out there. Yeah, I agree, Monica. That was my take on this too, is that it, it brings it into alignment with other language. You know, you have a current diagnosis, that's what's in there. We use empiric treatment relatively frequently. If you know if there's not an easy test in the case of COVID-19, there's a there are multiple tests available, but that doesn't mean that there should be an exception when it comes to full FDA approval. So it'll be interesting to see. There have been a lot of questions about this. Can we now prescribe it to someone who's traveling? Can it be for someone to have just in case? And the language still does say current, but as that supply shifts away from the government providing treatment, I think it opens it up a little bit to you know prescriber discretion. But as long as we're using product that's been paid for by the government and everyone who's dispensing it has signed an agreement to be able to 
to to carry the medication, there's there's some degree of accountability that's expected. And I think if you asked anyone from the government, they would say, no, it's still only for current diagnosis of COVID-19. So that brings us into a, a good segue into the, you know, we've talked a couple of times now about ending the PHE, what it means for therapeutics, what does it mean for commercialization of product? How does it affect patient access payment for some of these things? We do know that sometime this year, calendar year 2023, we're likely to see a shift to commercial supply of at least some of the therapeutics that seems to be molnupiravir will be first, according to information from HHS and FDA. They've held a couple of commercialization webinars for stakeholders to, to kind of give an update. They also would expect nermatrelvir or ritonavir to shift to a commercial marketplace at some point. These aren't directly tied to the end of the PHE. It's just as the government supply ends. As we've seen from previous therapeutics, it does not have to be fully approved to shift to a commercial marketplace. So that really doesn't have an impact on it. But there are some other changes coming at the end of the PHE. So Monica, I think you had some information to discuss or some thoughts on on how this is going to unfold. Yeah. And it's an alphabet soup of legislature and declarations and acts and whatnot. And I do want to give a shout out to ASHP. Back in January, they did email out a document, a nice summary of what the various rollbacks are, what that means for various healthcare providers and pharmacists in particular. So a link to that and the summary of that will be available in the handout associated with this podcast. So let's take it back. So the public health emergency was initially declared in January of 2020. That declaration lasts for 90 days and it needs to be continuously renewed, which it has been for the past three years. We think that the last and the final renewal happened in February of 2023. So that means that the public health emergency is set to expire at the end of day, May 11th, 2023, which is not that far off. Now, there were a number of other legislation that was passed related to COVID as well. Families First Coronavirus Response Act, Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security or the CARES Act, Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. And not all of these are tied specifically to the ending of the PHE. So it gets really confusing what ends when and how that affects us. So I'm going to try to summarize some key points. A lot of this will be specific, especially when we're talking about Medicaid state by state wise as well. So even though the public health emergency is ending on May 11th, that doesn't mean that the emergency use authorizations will also end then. The emergency use authorizations were tied to Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and these have to be terminated by themselves. So we don't think they will end the same time in May, but we yet don't know when the EUAs will cease to exist and cease to allow us to use those products. Additionally, the ending of the PHE does not mean the ending of the PREP Act, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. This is what gave pharmacists, interns, and technicians additional allowances for testing, treating, providing vaccines, etc. The PREP Act, that is set to expire October 1st of next year, 2024. And again, all of these dates are tentative. As we've realized, everything can change. So now that I set the stage for that, what does that mean for the actual testing, 
treatments, vaccinations. And I think this is lumped into four buckets, three of which I will try to cover. The first is a completely uninsured patient. The second is the Medicare patient. The third is Medicaid. And then the fourth is private insurance. I think Mikey kind of touched upon the uninsured, the ones that are covered by the government purchased, and those are rapidly dwindling down. So it will be a big problem for patients that don't have any kind of insurance. How do we get reimbursed by this? I think it's going to fall upon state absorption. Talking about testing. So the at-home tests or the PCR tests go to a clinic, go to a drive-through, et cetera. So for Medicare patients, the free at-home testing and the free on-site testing, all of that expires May 11th. For our Medicaid patients, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because I have no idea what this means. Kathy tried to explain it. <laughs> we'll let her jump in. But for testing for Medicaid patients, the free testing ends the last day of the first calendar quarter beginning one year after the end of the PHE. Kathy, what did you think that meant? That actually comes out to September 30th, 2024. So a year and a quarter from now. Thank you. Which is right before the PrEP Act ends. Correct. Yep. That's probably strategic in some way. <laughs> and then for private insurances, both at home testing and the on site testing, all of that is most likely going to also expire on May 11th. However, that will depend on the private insurances because they may contract differently. I want to pause because I released a bunch of information. Any additional comments about testing before we move on to vaccinations? No, I think you covered it pretty well. Might have to wake our listeners up. but Mike was talking, but audio didn't come, but he was shaking his head no. So we're just going to say refer to the document because this is all confusing. So vaccines, what does that mean? For our Medicare patients for the COVID vaccines, I don't think too much is going to change in terms of the patient portion of this because they are now covered under Medicare Part B and D. What will change is the reimbursement to providers. Before there was a higher reimbursement, supposedly we were getting $40 per Medicare recipient that where we vaccinated them in the outpatient setting. Now that reimbursement will revert to other Medicare Part B vaccines. So we may see a decrease in reimbursement there. For our Medicaid patients, nothing should change because Medicaid covers all ACIP recommended vaccines. And we mentioned that an annual COVID vaccine is recommended by ACIP. However, we didn't talk about this before. Maybe we're going to have a recommendation for an additional bivalent booster for immunocompromised patients. If that is the case as of right now, that is not covered by ACIP. So, if you have a patient on Medicaid that may be eligible for a bivalent booster, have them get it before May 11th, <laughs> because I don't know what will happen to coverage after that, if that gets authorized, the, the additional booster. And then private insurances, what does that mean for vaccines? There was no stipulation. There was no national stipulation about coverage. Most private insurances do cover ACIP recommendations, so I don't think that's going to change too much. And then the last one is the therapeutics. So therapeutics, like we talked about, could be the orals, norantavir, malnupiravir. It could be the IVs, remdesivir, or baricitinib, or tocilizumab. Those vary, again, based on what kind of insurance you have. For our Medicare patients, institutions were receiving enhanced payments 
for these therapeutics, and that enhanced payment is scheduled to end September 30th, 2024, and revert to standard payment. And for patients in particular, cost sharing will resume on May 12th, 2023. So if there is a copay or co-share, our Medicare recipients may be responsible for that. For Medicaid, the full coverage ends the last day of the first calendar quarter beginning one year after the end of PHE, which Kathy just clarified for us, is also September 30th, 2024. And for our private insurance patients, there was no formal mandate previously in place. Many insurance insurers have begun phasing out the cost sharing waivers, which may mean that once these are commercialized, patients may be responsible for a copay if they need to receive nermatoveratonavir, malnupiravir, possibly remdesivir or other therapeutics as well. So it's a hot mess of dates and insurance coverages, which is probably an accurate reflection of healthcare in the U.S., I was going to say of the pandemic in general, but your characterization is probably more more accurate. So one other interesting thing I think to keep an eye on with therapeutics is so we noted that the PREP Act will continue until October 2024. We're also expecting nermatrovir retonavir. We're not doing CE. I don't know why I won't call it Paxlovid. I blame Monica, but we're expecting full FDA approval at some point. And someone correct me, but I don't know of any prescription drug out there, maybe outside of a REMS program that has a restriction on who can prescribe it and how it can be prescribed. The way the current labeling for nermatrophia ritonavir exists as it is today. So I might be making an assumption, but I'm thinking that language is going to be removed when it's fully approved. Just because it's inconsistent, it kind of gets into FDA practicing medicine. I think they have better control over a drug while it's under EUA. Once it's fully approved, that should be under state scope of practice. So I'm curious if any of, if either of you have thoughts on this, but you know, if the current PrEP Act stays intact, what does that do to pharmacists prescribing potentially? Or do we see a change in the PrEP Act where maybe that Ninth Amendment is repealed or altered in some way? Has anyone heard anything, given any thoughts to this? I certainly think it's something interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think that's actually a great point. There is no other drug that I know of that puts a restriction on prescribing of one type of healthcare provider that is not on another healthcare provider. I mean, why do pharmacists need to check for renal function and liver function when physicians and NPs do not? It's assuming there is a different level of standard of care. Having said that, I think FDA is going to have to work through this in terms of whether or not this becomes a REMS program or how it's documented when pharmacists do prescribe. I have a feeling they will not likely remove the restriction from pharmacists prescribing, but how that will actually be implemented will be interesting to see. Having said that, I do know that pharmacists prescribing of Paxlovid has been very infrequent across the country. These barriers in place are barriers. If the intent of allowing pharmacists to prescribe was to increase equity, this was a complete failure because community pharmacists do not have this opportunity to look at a piece of documentation for labs or other healthcare information. And second of all, um, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is, why do we have to do this for free? Why aren't we getting paid to do this? If I have to do all this additional work, 
we should be reimbursed as prescribers. That's, I think, the soapbox that all of us are willing to stand on. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Completely agree. And I know, again, shout out to ASHP. There is some work being done for pharmacists, providers on a national level. I know we in Massachusetts on the state level as well, we are introducing legislature that would reimburse pharmacists and more importantly, have pay parity as well so that we are reimbursed at similar rates as other healthcare providers. And I do want to point out that the PrEP Act does have a different expiration date compared to the PHE. PHE is May 11th, 2023. PrEP Act currently is October 1st, 2024. So I don't think we've seen a lot of discussion about that because that's next year problem. Let's focus on PHE first and PrEP in 2024. Half jest, half seriousness. No, I'm there with you. There's uh, enough on our plates right now. We don't need to look forward that quite that far. So a few interesting things to to kind of keep track of as we end the PHE and as we expect commercialization of some product. Any closing thoughts from either of you? I know that this podcast is mostly on the COVID therapeutics, but with the ending of the PHE, there are other implications for pharmacies and pharmacists as well. And again, look at the handout, look at the links that are associated with there. There are implications for telehealth services, what is allowed, what isn't allowed. I think one of the biggest impacts is whether telehealth services are going to continue to be accepted for prescription of controlled substances. Currently, that is a no unless states act and change their regulations. Additionally, liability coverage for some of these COVID countermeasures that expires with the end of the PrEP Act in October of 2024. And I think that's all, (laughs) or at least that's all I had time to comprehend because these are, I want an honorary law degree for this today. (laughs) I say that all the time. Totally agree. And the only other thing that I would add is, you know, we talked a lot about Medicare and Medicaid, but a lot of these programs actually are different depending on the state. So we have Medi-Cal. And so we have programs that don't necessarily align with federal just because we have state legislation. So whichever state you're in, you have to sort of look at the Medicaid regs for your particular state. And with the end of the PHG, we have quite a few states that will no longer have Medicaid expansion. So or are going to cut Medicaid services. So all of that is really important also at a state level. And even the things like commercial insurance plans, the issue with cost sharing, those are also state specific. So it's really hard to make generalizations. We know what the federal guidelines is and whether or not your state follows federal versus they make up their own rules. I mean, we're California, we always make up our own rules. It really is dependent upon where you live. Yeah, that's a good reminder for our listeners to to go ahead and check out any state resources that are available for their state Medicaid programs and for any other implications as the PHE comes to an end. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I would like to thank Dr. Kathy Yang, Dr. Monica Mahoney for joining us today to discuss COVID-19 and the immune compromised population. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources, such as our COVID-19 Resource Center. The living handout from the original webinar will be updated and posted with this podcast recording. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast. 
engaging the experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.